Welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey where we talk with people who are trying to live their most fulfilling life, which often tends to be on a much different path than it started out on. Whether it was changing careers, getting laid off from a job which sparked their entrepreneurial journey, or breaking through the noise to answer their calling. All of these types of situations and more, but they wouldn't have gotten to where they're at today if they didn't get started. We talk about the why and the how of these getting started moments and the lessons learned along the way. I'm grateful to have you listening in along on this episode, so let's get it started. On this week's episode, I welcome in Brian Clayton, who is the CEO and co-founder of GreenPal, an online marketplace that connects homeowners with local lawn care professionals. GreenPal has been called the Uber of Lawn Care by Entrepreneur Magazine and has over 200,000 active users, completing thousands of transactions per day. Before starting GreenPal, Brian founded Peachtree Incorporated, one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee, growing it to over $10 million a year in annual revenue before it was acquired by Lusa Holdings in 2013. His interests and expertise are related to entrepreneurialism, small business growth, marketing, and bootstrapping businesses from zero revenue to profitability and exit. And I hope you all enjoy this wide-ranging conversation I have with Brian. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you. Hey, thanks for me, uh, having me on, Brian. Great to be here. I'm excited to, to chat a little bit about your journey, man, because it looks like um, it, it's always unique, you know, just all the different people I get to talk to here of the different ways they get to where they are and all the, you know, the hurdles you got to jump and all the different things they go through. And I, I want to obviously talk a lot about kind of your current business that you're running with uh, Green Pal and stuff like that. But it seems like maybe the business you had before that was a launch pad to get to where you are. So maybe it starts there. I always like to ask this question from time to time. So I'll start here. What did you, before you, because you went to Middle Tennessee State, before you, like when you were entering college, when you were kind of getting, um, you know, psyched up to do that, what were you going to be when you grew up? What was that? When someone asked you that question, what was that answer at that time? Do you remember? Yeah, it was, it was tough because, uh, because yeah, like my, my company now is green pals, like the Uber for lawn mowing tech company, marketplace app. Before that, I had a lawn mowing business that I ran for 15 years. I started cutting grass in high school as a way to make extra cash. And then I, and then I put myself through college mowing yards. And then to your, to your question, like when I graduated college, I had to make a decision. Was I going to go into the job market and basically take a pay cut uh, or was I going to stick with this lawn mowing business? I had no appetite to be a lawn guy. I didn't really want to be a lawn guy my whole life. Uh, but what I did learn from like starting mowing grass in high school is a way, way to make extra cash and, and just doing it all through college. I, I was like, I did like being an entrepreneur. I, I did enjoy and still do to this day being in charge of kind of my own destiny and, and making my own business and, and creating my own services or products. And mm -hmm. that appealed to me. And so I kind of saw lawn mowing as the vehicle to to build something from scratch and build something really big i i uh i kind of had a chip on my shoulder and i i just wanted the biggest most profitable money-making landscaping company in in nashville tennessee uh that i could build and mm. and i just made like a and so like in the early days it was very ego driven and i and so i made a business plan and and worked my butt off and got a lot of good people on the on the bus with me and and uh, I started to see results. I started to see this thing taking off over a 15 year period of time. I was able to build that business from just me and a push mower to me, and, me to around 150 employees. 
uh, $10 million a year in revenue. And in 2013, the business was acquired by one of the largest landscaping companies in the United States. Wow. But like in the early days, it was very much ego driven. I was like, man, I just want to build the biggest landscaping company. I want to have all the, I want to, I want to be able to see my trucks all over town. And, and then after about two or three years, I was like, well, okay, yeah, that's cool. But this is really more about the team that works here and about, about their families. And now I'm in charge of, of this thing that's got, you know, 30, 40, what ended up being 150 people. And so like, like, like the, the why kind of evolved yeah. as, as time went on and, and the, the purpose that I got out of the business and why I was doing it kind of evolved. And I think if you're doing business, right, it does. I think, I think it, it's dynamic. Well, it's always interesting too, is the, um, and, and actually, Seth Godin talks about this a lot. He chatted about the book when he was on, on my podcast about around, you know, it's always the argument of, do you go to do something you're passionate about, and then that becomes successful? Or is it because you're successful, you actually become passionate? So may, to your point, maybe it was just ego driven at the beginning. But then as you start to see success, you start to like running a business, helping the, the families of the business and stuff, all of a sudden you became more passionate. You wanted to do it more and more. Would that be agreeable or? Yeah, I, I think that, that that's a fair statement. Um, what, one thing that makes sense to me, I'm, I'm a, kind of a pragmatic kind of guy. And so I, I kind of see like, just try to see things very straightforward. And, and uh, so, so like the follow your passion thing to me, for most people is bad advice because I was never passionate about grass cutting. Um, I was never, I hate, in fact, I hated it. Um, uh, I, you know, for years, a decade, I would come home smelling like gasoline. I would have like scars on my hands from like changing lawnmower blades, like grass all over me. And like, it just sucked. This is not, it's not a great business to be in. So I certainly was not passionate about, about the business and I never would have been. So like if somebody had given me the, the advice of, Oh, just follow your passion and everything else will, you'll never work a day in your life. And I feel like that's bad advice. Um, that said, I think your business can can be the source of of purpose in your life, and and mm-hmm. I think like to live a meaningful life, you have to have one that's filled with purpose, and and so like the business can be the the source of that, and 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 so as as time like in the early days, and as I was growing that company, and even now today building GreenPal, the business is the purpose to my life. It's like the storyline mm-hmm. to my life, and it's the thing that's that's giving me a reason to get out of bed in the morning. I think a question that you can always ask yourself in business uh, is like, if it weren't for me, then X, if it weren't for me, then what? And like the answer to that question, it can, can be your purpose. So like if it, if it like running that company, like if it weren't for me, there were 10 people that weren't going to get a paycheck that week. Yeah. Uh, if it weren't for me, then, uh, then we, we have all these goals that everybody's bought into and, and, uh, and everybody's rallied around that we want to hit and we're not going to hit those. And if it weren't for me, then maybe, uh, one of my, my crew leaders can't put her, his daughter through college. Um, so it's like, like, like business can be the source of purpose and then, and then, and then you can get passionate about that. But, uh, but the reality is most businesses are really hard to get going. They're really, they're a lot of hard work. It's a, a lot of exercise of faith and, and, and you can be passionate about the process and about the results. But, but, you know, you ask anybody, like if you own a bakery, like, are you really passionate about baking pies? Not now, not anymore. Uh, you know, yeah. It's like, it's like, it'll almost, if you were passionate about it, it'll probably even kill the passion yeah. <laughs> in a weird way. So it's like, be passionate about the, 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 the why, why you're doing it. The purpose I think can be helpful. Yeah. I want to take a, uh, before we go forward, I want to, I want to underscore a couple of things you said there, but 
when you're back in, and you started, I think you said you were 16 or so, some somewhere in the, in the teenage years, uh, mowing lawns, was that just like mowing for neighbors next door? And then how did you get to that first quote unquote employee? It might've been a friend you gave five bucks to, I don't know, but like, how did you all decide to say, okay, besides this meat, because most of the time, right? I mowed lawns when I was a kid. It was my grandfather. I mowed it for a couple other people, but that was it. I never took it to the next step. Um, why did you want to take it to the next step? You mentioned the chip on your shoulder, maybe go into that a little bit. Yeah, it, uh, that's a hard moment in any business owner's uh, journey is hiring your first employee. You're effectively in one swoop, just doubling the business. And uh, unless you can hire somebody part-time or one day a week, which can help. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that was a tough decision for me. I, you know, and I wasn't, uh, I was probably 18, 19 years old. I was, so I was a few years into the little business. And what I started noticing was, I was just getting more work than I could do. And, and I started like just doing the rough numbers. I'm not the smartest guy, but I started to figure out that if I could just double output and pay somebody a decent wage that I could put more money in my pocket and buy better equipment and make ourselves more efficient and maybe do some more on marketing and grow the business even more. And, and so it's, it's like these, the, the lawn mowing business is, is, is really good for that in terms of teaching you the fundamentals of business. Um, it's a really good business that anybody can get into. And, and a lot of the principles of running a successful lawn mowing business um, apply to every business. And so to your point, like, how do you know that you can afford to hire this person? And you start like doing some rough figures and projections. And yeah, it's not real sophisticated. You can probably do it on the back of an envelope. But these are exercises that every business owner kind of needs to go through and learn just through trial and error. And uh, that was that was something that, that I had to learn the hard way. There were there were weeks where, where the guy that worked for me made more money than I did. And it was because I screwed something up. I screwed up pricing somewhere or we weren't running efficient enough or they just weren't p pulling their weight. And so that's the fun thing about business is it forces you to level up. It forces you to like solve these problems if you're going to stay in business. And uh, as every stage of the game, the challenges get, get more and more and more and you grow even more and more from it. You know, like looking back, 15 years in the first company, uh, now eight years in my second company, GreenPal, one thing that makes sense looking back at, at the whole thing from the rear view is like business can almost like be like a video game. Like you can like lay it out in 10 levels and just focus mm -hmm. on one level at a time. And so, and so to, to your question, it's like level one might've just been, Hey, I, I need to make a thousand dollars a week. And then, and then level two might've been, okay, now I know I can make $2,000 a week if I can, uh, if I can hire a good employee. And then level three along that same uh, train of thought is like, okay, now I need, now I need a third and fourth employee, but I don't, but I'm not able to like keep these people. Uh, so I need to figure that out. And also it's taking too long to train them. So I got to develop a little training system. And then, and then level four might be, okay, well now I'm running this crew and I get, I think if I could run two or three other crews, I could maybe break a million in sales and that would be fun. And now, now you're developing managers. You got to have a management training system. The, the point is, it's like, you don't need to worry about the management manager training system when you're on level one. Like just get through level one, like throw up the flag at the end of the level and then focus on the next level one thing at a time. And it's going to take you a long time to get going. It may take five, 10 years, but it'll be worth it. Mm. Yeah, that's great advice. What, was there like a breakthrough moment that you remember, you know, as you were scaling up that maybe was the catalyst to really launch it into the really the bigger business that it became because you were able to you know get it acquired and stuff. Anything you can remember? Yeah. You know, when I, when I, when I came to the realization that 
to get to eight figures, we were going to, going to have to be a sales machine, a sales engine. We weren't in the lawn mowing business. We were in the sales business. And, and I don't mean that from like a, like a shyster, like used car salesman mentality. I mean like a really good sales process in terms of discovering what our clients needs were and aligning our, our solution to those needs. And so one thing that we really keyed in on when I, when I, I did all the sales for the first like seven, eight years, but then when I hired my first salesperson and my second, third and fourth, that's when we really started to scale up. And one thing that we did differently was uh, let's say we, we were going to sell a six figure lawn maintenance contract to an apartment complex. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't talk about lawns. We wouldn't talk about grass. We would talk about occupancy rate. We would talk about okay, well, you know, what is your occupancy rate right now? Well, it's 82%. Why do you ask? Well, because I believe, and here's some case studies where I can prove it, that if we increase your curb appeal and install this floral display here by the model and do X, Y, and Z, we can get that to, to 91% within two years. Oh, okay. Now, now you're talking a different conversation. Now you really have their, their attention. And, and guess what? Now you don't have to compete on price uh, because the lawn mowing business is hyper competitive, is cutthroat. Yeah. But if you can reframe that conversation and really deliver on it in terms of aligning what it is you ever you do to help your client get to wherever it is they're trying to go, that is uh, that's how you that's how you effectively develop business. Yeah. And it took like seven eight years for me to kind of stumble onto this and figure this out. But but that was one of the, the, the inflection points that got us from like two or three million in sales to five, seven, eight, and then eventually ten. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Uh, just to to layer onto, right? I mean, it's you're really the guide and in, in the kind of the hero's journey. You're you're Obi Wan Kenobi and, and the clients, Luke Skywalker there. So you're trying to really help them along the way. It's not yeah, it's not about cutting grass. Like there's a different outcome they're looking for, which is they want more residents. They want more people there. So I think that's a, that was a great discovery on on your uh, as you went through that. Um, yeah, and, and I didn't have Donald Miller's. Uh, story brand book back then if i had had it it would have made a lot better sense yeah. um but that's what that book is about it's about that exact thing it's like you don't want to be the hero in the sales process you want to be the guide yeah and you want to guide your client to wherever they're trying to go and you're helping them get there through whatever product or service that you're selling yeah. i think in your own story as it relates to your business you can certainly be the hero and and uh you know like you're come overcoming all these challenges and you're trying to get to where you're trying to go in your business you're the hero of your story and your business can be the thing that that lends an interesting storyline to your business and that's great um but when it comes to selling you, you're not the hero the, yeah. the the customer is well so i want to talk a little about this green pal and and how this kind of came to fruition so help me out here because I'm, I'm in the dark was part of the acquisition or, or I guess the part of the selling of the old business to go and do this, or did you already have some of this in play? Like did the idea come after help me out? How did green Pell come about that idea? How did you, how do you start that up? Yeah, there was a hard stop and a hard restart between the two they, they didn't flow into one or the other. Um, I did have the idea for green Pell while I was running uh, my first company just because I, I saw how difficult it was every day for, for homeowners to just, just get hooked up with a good, solid lawn mowing service. And, and the way I saw this manifest itself was people would call our office every day, 40 or 50 phone calls a day. Hey, will you come cut my grass? And we didn't do residential services anymore. Mm -hmm. we, we only did strictly big commercial contracts. And, and so we didn't do that. But one of our values in running that business was to always be helpful and always try to just like lend value wherever we could. And so we would keep a list of names and numbers by the phone. And we say, we don't do that anymore. But here's five names and numbers. You should call these people. We know they're good. And then so it's like, okay, you know, 
we're, we're helping folks out, great. But then what would happen all the time is those, is those same people would call back and they say, hey, I left five voicemails two times for all those people. Uh, one called me back, promised to give me an estimate. Um, they, 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 they didn't. Uh, another person gave me a quote over the phone. Uh, they showed up and then they want to double. And then another person uh, said they could do it today and they haven't showed up yet. And I, I need some more names. And like we saw that over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so... And so after I sold the company, you know, I took some time off. I was able to retire after that, which was nice. And so I, I didn't have to like do any certain thing to sustain myself. And, and so then I could do what I wanted to do. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take another crack at this. I'm wired to love business. I'm, I, I'm wired to be in the game. Uh, like I was mentioning earlier, I, I, I realized that my business was the, the source of purpose in my life. And it is the thing that lends an interesting storyline to my life. Guess what? All that was gone. So now I needed to like fire up another, another company. And I thought, well, the first business was really tough. It was a lot of hand to hand combat running a business with, with 150 employees that it's heavily labor based was just, and, 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 and also uh, machinery based too. Like it's just a uh, hundred problems every day. And I was like, okay, I don't want to do that kind of business ever again. Cause that was really hard. I want to do something easy. I should start a software business. And so the idea for GreenPal was just one that I, I had in my head. I was like, you know what? An app needs to exist kind of like Uber and Airbnb, which they were just getting started at the time. And like, yeah, yeah, now that would be great. I just need to start a software business because that'll be so much easier. And boy, that I did not know what I didn't know. Uh, I was very naive to, to, the, to the challenges that, that, that laid ahead and, and the difficulty of not only like the software execution and building the software, but the dynamics of creating a marketplace from scratch. And then also inventing a brand new product that does not yet exist all of these things i i had no clue i was very naive and uh you know the only thing that that, that we had going for us my two co-founders and us and and i was that we just were were not willing to give up and the first year was really tough we had to we we tried to pay somebody to build what we thought green pal should be and it, that was a failure we wasted like $150,000 on that mistake and then we realized we had to learn how to build software if we were going to keep going and uh, so we, we kind of made a resolve to do that. And then, uh, and then after we learned how to build software, after about three years, we, we kind of cobbled together the, the, the second version, which we've just been improving on uh, ever since. And so we're kind what of an eight-year... Can, eight can, can I pause you for a second? Because um, this, is, this is awesome. I want to make sure I'm kind of following along. How did you... Uh, you said you had two co-founders. How did you meet them? Are they were they friends of yours? Were these folks you could met through other connections? What were their backgrounds? Were they business folks? Were they developers? What was their backgrounds? These were guys that I had known for for a long time, who I could trust, and who I knew they had uh, had sufficient ambition to try to pull this thing off. And so they also like had, had like a chip on their shoulder, and I I know what that looks like, and I know that when somebody has just had it with. Cubicle life has just had it with corporate America and just does not want to waste their life uh, sitting in a cubicle. I've I know what that looks like, and I thought, okay, I saw the fire in their belly, and I thought, okay, these are two guys I want to be in business with, and uh, and I figured that if all three of us were like sufficiently motivated, we could just figure the rest out, and and that turned out to be true. I got lucky there, and that was that was right. But none of us knew how to build software. None of us knew how to design software. We were very naive as far as that's concerned. And so we had to teach ourselves these things. My co-founder went to a software school in, here in Nashville where I live. And that was like an eight-month curriculum. And he was kind of 
building green pal nights and weekends while going to that and then my other co-founder learned product design and i, I learned uh, how to be a front-end engineer a really bad one at that but just enough to like be able to build the platform as it should be and then create a, a platform in which we can improve upon and iterate upon we didn't have that when we paid the shop to build the first version and we had to scrap that entire thing what, and, what did you like try to outsource that overseas or something or what was the uh well well we we tried a couple different things yes we tried to outsource overseas and that was even a bigger failure we didn't even luckily we didn't even get get too far on that path and then we thought okay well we at least need to be able to sit down with somebody face to face and and uh we 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 found a shop in nashville we got like four or five different quotes the whole process looking back is just absolutely hilarious because we didn't really know what it should be. And, and, you know, we had these specs and it was completely based on assumptions that were not validated and, and ideas that weren't validated and, and just hypothesis. And, and so that's why outsourcing tech doesn't work is because you don't, it's like the Mike Tyson quote, everybody has a plan to get, get punched in the nose. If you're building a tech product, odds are you're inventing something from scratch that doesn't exist or you're taking something that does exist and you're trying to like do it in a whole new way that's better, or at least you think. And uh, and you have to be able to move very quickly. You have to be able to like improve on a daily basis the 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 functionality and what it does. And so we didn't have that when we outsourced this thing to the shop in Nashville. And and when we launched it, it fell way short of, of what it should do. And, and and vendors didn't like using it. And if they don't like using it, then then there is no inventory for homeowners to hire. And right. and so it, it was it was very evident very quickly that uh, and we we got we, we were able to hustle up about a hundred people to use the first version by, by passing out door hangers and flyers all over yeah. Nashville. We we were able to hustle up a hundred or so people to use it. And but we met with as many of these people as we could to try to get feedback. Were we on the right track? Were we at least, you know, it was the idea any good at least? And like what well, the thing we kept coming around uh, across was these people were were let down, upset, disappointed that it didn't work. And we were able to uh, to understand that that's actually a good thing. We were reading a book at the time called The Startup Owner's Manual by uh, author, his name is Steve Blank. And he also wrote another book called Four Steps to the Epiphany. And these two books are, are like the predecessors to the lean startup. And so the lean startup, Four Steps to the Epiphany, startup, Startup's Owner's Manual, those three books kind of tell you the same thing, which is, when you're building a tech product from scratch, you have to quote, get out of the building. You have to, you have to get out of the building and talk to as many people as you can to understand and validate whatever guesses and assumptions you had and understand what features you need to be working on and which ones are not important. And so we were at least able to have that um, kind of uh, methodology to, to put into practice. And, and we did relentlessly. And that was kind of what what uh, salvaged the, the whole thing was that we knew that by talking with these people face to face, that they wanted the product to work that like they had experienced the same thing that these people had experienced at my former company. They had tried to hire somebody three or four times and they couldn't get a reliable, smooth, seamless service. And so the app, the promise of it was something that they really wanted to work. And so we took that as validation to understand, okay, this is worth spending the next five, 10 years on. Let's just keep moving forward. And that gave us the, the, uh, 
I guess the, the, the reignited the, the fire in our belly to keep moving forward and to learn how to build software and to learn how to create this thing. Because, because we, we realize that like, if we're going to be in the tech business, we're going to have to learn how to execute tech. Hmm. When you were having these interviews, which I think is phenomenal, by the way, I remember um, listening to the co-founders of Airbnb and they were talking about early on Airbnb. They, they went and did like free professional photography for a lot of folks in New York city. And then all of a sudden they learned, was there something you remember learning from those, those early adopters, if you will, um, that changed the course of the business versus maybe the way you were going to build it before would have been different. Anything you learned in those conversations? Yeah, lots of things. Uh, lots of things. The, the one, one that sticks out, I mean, out of, out of, out of, out of dozens is, when we came to the, uh, I guess the starting line, I had, I had come to, to the project with, uh, the mentality of a contractor. Cause I had spent 15 years as a contractor. And when you spend 15 years in the landscaping business, you get kind of uh, jaded in terms of, you think that everybody just wants the cheapest price that they can get for the services you're selling. And that may or may not be true, but you certainly believe it to be the reality when you spend 15 years as a contractor and you're constantly getting beat up on price. And so I came to the, to the equation and thinking, okay, we have to build this app in such a way to, to cut down on the costs of lawn mowing services and to, and to deliver uh, a lawn mowing service like that's 10 or $20 cheaper. And that's going to be our value proposition. And what I came to find out when we did these user interviews, uh, People just wanted speed and reliability. They didn't, like every single time, they were like, I just needed somebody to show up and I needed somebody today or worst case in the morning. That's all I need. And I'm willing to pay uh, whatever the market rate is. And so price you know, has to be in range, but you don't have to be the cheapest. And so what we never heard, and I mean never heard out of hundreds of interviews, was, well, I'm paying 38 bucks, but I saw your app and I want to see if I can get it done for 27. We literally never heard that. And so that was like a, a aha moment for us. Like, okay, we have to change how we're building this thing. We have to change what we're focused on, what our priorities are, how we message the product, what the ad copy looks like, everything. Everything was inflected, was changed from, from that moment forward in terms of how we rolled out and built the next version. Wow. And you mentioned, so... Why I'm curious the decision here of you obviously had a bad experience with the early developer spent a lot of money. You could have went and found another developer and had someone else build it because you guys had no tech background. What was the decision actually all three of y'all go go and learn how to develop um, an app? How was that? I guess how were those conversations like? Yeah. Are we gonna really do this or you know you know. If it had, if if the relationship had kind of worked pretty good, that was probably the worst thing that could have happened to us. Um, luckily, it's like if you're going to fail, like the worst thing, the worst situation you can find yourself as an entrepreneur is like not like like a total failure or a total grand slam. But in the middle is where you get in trouble. And because in the middle, it's like it's kind of working and it's just good enough to not give up. But, um, but, but it's not going to break out. And, and so you just kind of slog away on a, on a crappy business for years and years and years until, until either you figure out what works or, or you just never get anywhere. And so that's actually the worst place to be. Luckily for us, this relationship 
uh, with with outsourcing to this to this ro- which was a robust shop. Like they had designers in house, several engineers, product manager, account manager. It wasn't like they they were hacks, and we just like made a bad hiring decision. It was just so clearly evident that the gap between what we spent eight months building with these folks and what we launched and what we where we needed to get to was just so big. We knew we couldn't like keep going back to them and doing change orders yeah. and like just like ten thousand dollaring ourselves to death. Um, and we knew that this wasn't a viable option forward. It was very clear. It wasn't even up for consideration. So luckily, the outcome was such that it was binary. It was like, okay, either give up or learn how to write software. And I, and I would imagine I'm not the only one to make this mistake. And I would imagine anybody else who's been down that path probably came across the same reality. It's that you just you just cannot. I mean, sure, if you if you run a a laundromat or a home cleaning service or a construction company and you want to hire a dev shop to build a kick-ass website and maybe a way that uh, homeowners can pay their bill or something great outsource that but if you're inventing a brand new software product from scratch that doesn't exist and has all of these robust features and like does all of these things in the real world or digitally that don't exist yet you're going to have to learn how to build software and let me update this advice it also goes for no code uh like like there's all these no code platforms uh that have emerged in the last five years and I think that I think those are great for validating an idea, but at some point you're you're gonna have to learn how to build software and you're and you're gonna have to have that core competency on the DNA of the team. And it's just as table stakes to 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 be in a tech business. Mm. And did you all decide to finance this yourself or did you go out and look for investors at all? Or did would, did that ever cross your plate or the common the common path for tech startups like ours is you you just you have to raise a bunch of money to like even get started. Like you, you have to, in order to, in order to get started with an, with a mobile app, you have to have an iOS guy an Android guy. You have to have a backend engineer, a front end engineer, a product manager and a designer. And that's just table say that's six people. And every one of those people makes like minimum six figures, maybe two fifty a year. And so like you, like out the gate, you need two or $3 million just to get started. And so that's why most tech startups do that. And then once you raise that angel round of funding, you're kind of setting off a, a chain reaction of events that you have to raise a series a, series a or you die. You have to raise a series B or you mm-hmm. die. And it's a, it, it forces you into a binary outcome. Um, whereas like you hit a grand slam uh, or, or you'll get a zero. And for, and like when it works, it's a very beautiful thing to, to watch, you know, when you see the Ubers and Airbnbs and like, you know, Coinbase just going public for a hundred billion bucks. And, um, you know, when you see venture capital get put to work and birth these humongous companies and seemingly overnight, um, it's, it's just like, you want some of that. But the reality is, is that for most entrepreneurs, that is a bad bet. Um, and, and I kind of saw that early on. Um, and I was never, I was never inclined to go down that path because I I had taken a very pragmatic approach with the first business. And I knew so long as we could just make some money and put the money back to work that we would eventually get there. And I also knew that this wasn't going to be a land grab situation where somebody was just going to like pull the rug out from under us. These were all things that I knew day one, just from spending my whole life in the industry. And uh, so we decided to, to, to fund the business on its own revenue. We, we purposely did not go raise capital. Um, and, and we have probably over the years turned down hundreds of, of inbounds from, from investors. 
because we we wanted to always like be in charge of our own destiny and and we were scared by some of the horror stories where founders get forced out of their business when they're not able to hit the, the milestones that their investors uh expect them to i didn't really want to do that and, you know i didn't i did i i and my my founder my co-founders didn't either and so we just decided to take the hard way and just fund it off of its own revenues now there's some there's some there is some uh some positives of going that route, it, you know, revenue can be the best form form of financing because it crystallizes your thinking. Uh, it really keeps you on track. You can't get too far off course when you're only making $3,000 a month all in and you have to like figure out how you're going to put that $3,000 to work. It's really hard to like get sidetracked on like what your TikTok strategy is when when you you have to like bootstrap the business, and I'm not like knocking a TikTok strategy, but I guess it doesn't work for our business. Yeah. And so and so like, so that's the path we chose. Um, it it was harder that way, but here we are now. You know, we're doing twenty million dollars a year in revenue, and we own one hundred percent of the business, uh, and 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 growing seventy five, eighty percent year over year. So like, it's a good place to be in on year eight. It's a really crappy place to be uh, year one through five. Yeah. When, so what you, obviously you ultimately launched the app and how long ago did you, this, I guess the second iteration of it, how long ago was that that you launched? So summer of 2013 was the, the dev shop debacle launched it, launched that product then. And then it took us another year and we kept that live in the marketplace just so we could try to get some learnings. Mm-hmm. And we're just reminded on a daily basis, how, how much, how much we stunk. Yeah. Um, and, and it took a year for us to like roll out a second release, which was actually a step backwards. It was even crappier than the first one, but at least it was set up in such a manner that we could iterate on top of it. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that was kind of like the, the second birth of the company. And then we were able to make, make consistent progress from that day forward. Mm-hmm. So what's been the hardest part those last five years or so? you know, kind of getting the app out there. Now you're starting to see some traction. What are some of the hurdles you guys are going through at this point or maybe have gone through recently? You know, you, you, you want to like, and this, this does happen where, where businesses um, are set off on this path and like there's this magical hockey stick moment and they just break out. It hadn't happened for us. Like every inch of the football field, we have had to like work our yeah. butt off for whether it has just been constant uh, 1%, 2%, 3% improvements that just inch us down the field. And so like when you're bootstrapping a business to, to stick with the, the foot for, like you play the running game, you, you're not taking big, long shots downfield. It's like, it's one and two yards at a time. And that's the way it's been for us for eight years. Like yeah. the numbers get bigger. So you start to see some compounding, uh, but it's still like, there wasn't ever one thing that we did that just was like, Oh, that was it. It was just constant improvement. So to answer your question, it was all tough. Um, some of the like personal aspects that made it hard were were, like, you know, not able to pay ourselves a salary for five years, literally did not, nobody made a salary for five years in this business. Mm. Um, now we, now we pay ourselves very well, but back then it was, it was very much exercise of faith. My two co-founders were still working at other jobs, like pay their bills. And, uh, that was hard. Um, constantly, trying to figure out why growth stalls and you know how to diagnose that and how to get it back on track like that's hard um you know understanding that you need these 10 things done today but you have to like prioritize the one or two of them and and, because that's all the bandwidth you got 
and you just kind of have to stick with what you have. I mean, that's, that's challenging. So it's, it's all challenging, but it's like, that's what makes it uh, valuable. It's like the challenge is, is what makes it important is what makes it valuable because, because that's how you create something valuable. And then also you as the entrepreneur, that's how you grow. Like, I think, I think as a successful or even a moderately successful entrepreneur, you should by naturally be reinventing yourself every three to five years. The business should cause you to do that. Whether it be like becoming a better leader, becoming a better manager, uh, learning how to write software, learning how to write ad copy, um, you know, understanding things about yourself and what makes you tick and what you really want out of life. Your business can be the the thing that, that causes you to go through those thoughts, thought sequences, yeah. thought sequences. And so I think like good business enforces you as the founder to, to reinvent yourself every so often, which is one of the great things about it. Yeah. What, one of the questions and more of my curiosity, because obviously with your app is not specific to like Nashville anymore. Like your other business was, or was in Tennessee, your other business. Now you're going basically nationwide, right? Or maybe beyond that. How do you know, or how did you know when to roll out to other cities? Was that just a lot of people signing up in a city and you're kind of on a waiting list? Or was that on the other end, I guess, the people that would be doing the service signing up? How, how do you know when to roll out? When, when did you get to that breaking point? It was very clear that we were not ready to go to new cities uh, for a very long time. And so we were in Nashville for four years. And we knew that, you know, one of the alluring things of starting a tech company is that you can scale it and that you can touch more lives and you can have more users than, than really in any other kind of business. You know, in my, in my landscaping company, I ran, a, I ran a pretty big landscaping business, but, you know, our customers were in the, in the hundreds or maybe a couple thousand. Uh, whereas this business, you know, I mean, it's, it's sky's the limit. And, you know, today we have several hundred thousand people using the app, you know, to get this service done. So that's one of the alluring things is like scaling. And so as an entrepreneur in the tech business, you got, you, you want to scale and like, and, but I think, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's good advice to like throttle that and get it working on a small scale first, reliably, consistently. Uh, and, and also a great way to measure that is the retention of the users. When somebody uses it, do they keep using it? Um, before you go f- wide and fast, um, they call it product market fit, which is which me- just is a fancy way of, of saying, like, do people get value out of it? When people use it, do they keep using it? Do they refer it to other people naturally? Uh, is it really solving a problem in somebody's life that they'll pay for? And once you've achieved that product market fit consistently, then it's time to, to move quickly. And uh, for us, it was four years. Like we had to figure out the workflows to balance the wants and desires of both sides of the transaction and, and strike a balance between lawn mowing services and homeowners to where they both got value out of the marketplace. It took a long time to figure that out. Um, but once we did, we moved into other cities and, and, and we didn't let that inform, we didn't let that be informed by anything other than um, in the early days, it was proximity because we needed to go there. And so it was like Atlanta and the cities in Florida. And then we've stayed in the Southeast for a while. And then we figured out how to launch a city without having to physically be there. And it was just like going through these things over and over again, we developed a pretty good playbook for rolling it out city, city by city. And that took five, six years. Now we're in every major uh, city in the, in the United States. Well, this is, Brian, this has been an awesome conversation. I want to end on this question. I always like to ask, and not that you would go back and change anything in your current life, but let's assume we were in an alternate dimension here and you can go back to your 16 year old self, just started mowing lawns. 
is there one piece of advice, something you've learned over this entire journey that's been the biggest learning that you'd want to share with that 16-year-old just to help them a little further along on, on their path? Anything you'd share? Yeah, the idea of you know working in your business and working on your business and understanding the difference between the two. You know, for years I just toiled away as hard as I could working in the business, working my butt off, mowing yards, and even you know made the same mistake on the second company, um, and really trying to taking inventory of the how much time you're spending in the business versus on the business, and and so like you know in the early days, it's going to be 90% in the business. You have to be out there mowing the yards, but then like maybe 10% of the time you need to be working on the business was like, well, how am I going to double revenue next year? And then how am I going to get the right people on, on board? And let me start thinking through that. And let me start thinking through the systems and processes that I'm going to need to have in place. And that's working on your business, high leverage stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the more time you can like take time away from in the business to on the business, that's how you get that flywheel going. And uh, if you don't, then you just kind of stay in the business forever and you don't actually own a business, you're self-employed. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's the difference between like owning a business and being self-employed is how much time you're spending in the business versus on the business. And so that's something that took me a decade to learn the hard way. I, I would go back and like try to beat that into my head at my younger self. It would have saved me 10 years. Oh, that's that's a really good advice there. Where can everyone, uh, if they want to connect with you online, or obviously, you know, go search the company, maybe use it in their area. G- give some of the details there. Yeah. So life's too short to cut your own grass. Anybody wants to use the app to get a lawn mowing service, come out and mow your yard. Uh, you'll get a you'll get five quotes back, and you can read reviews, pick the one you want to work with. You can just download Green Pal in the App Store or the Play Store. And then uh, anybody wants to hit me up, I've been hanging out on LinkedIn a little more lately. Um, so you shoot me a connection on LinkedIn and shoot me a message there. Awesome. Brian, thank you so much for coming on today. This was an absolute pleasure and uh, glad to meet you. Thanks for having me on, Brian. I enjoyed it. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that great interview. And thanks again for stopping by the Just Get Started podcast. Uh, grateful to have you here. And if I could just make one quick ask before you run along on your day. You know, I've grown this podcast organically over the last three plus years, and it's from the great listeners that pick up, you know, a quote or a key learning or just enjoy the entertainment of the podcast and they share it out to their audience. They leave a review on Apple Podcasts, whatever it is. Um, And I'd ask that for you as well. If you've made it to this point and are listening in, um, a lot of the podcast uh, platforms that you listen on have a share button right there where you can share it out to your audience on various platforms. So, I would be so appreciative if you wouldn't mind taking a quick second to do that um, if you really enjoyed this episode. So thanks again. I'm happy to connect online. I always love to meet new people. So if you want to go to my website, brianondraco.com, or connect with me, I'm at brianondraco, basically everywhere on Instagram, Twitter, even Clubhouse, that new app that's out there, uh, you name it. So uh, follow me online and uh, certainly look forward to connecting further. I hope you all have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.